All right, so as you see there, we are in chapter 7, determining literary units. And all the chapters to this point, uh, at least other than the first couple that were introductory, we've been in the observation stage of inductive Bible studies. We've talked about the first step is we want to observe the text, we want to ask the right questions, we want to look at literary features, all the things we've talked about the last several weeks. Then we're going to move to the interpretation stage. So, and then after that, of course, application. So this is the last chapter focused on observation. And there's kind of a bridge, as we're going to see, to that next step of interpretation. Um, but this chapter is about determining literary units. So um, it's important as we study the text to seek to, in a way, divide up certain units of Scripture, certain passages that are speaking to a certain idea, that kind of thing. So we want to make sure we understand how to break down God's Word as we study. Um, you'll notice, of course, if you have any modern version, we've divided Scripture into chapters and verses, right? Which is easy to reference, you know, turn to John chapter 2 or John chapter 3. It's easy for us to reference, but in the originals, there was not a division of uh, chapter and verse, and so... A lot of times the divisions are at a good spot that kind of demonstrate a transition, demonstrate a unit, but we're going to see some examples even uh, quickly this morning where that's not always the case. Sometimes those chapter divisions might break up a thought where we want to actually see that as a, a, a unit together. So how do we determine uh, what, how to divide up Scripture, how to find those units to study? Um, I don't know if I have this quote in your notes or not, but... Uh, I like this quote from the book. The Bible wasn't inspired in the form of chapters and verses, yet many readers structure their study along these boundaries. Doing so is akin to driving with blinders that block out peripheral vision. One can see what is straight in front, but there may be significant features all around that one misses. Perhaps a beautiful mountain vista on one side of the road and a thousand-foot drop on the other side. The parallel to reading Scripture is obvious. By seeing the text all around, and by noting its structural apparatus, including boundaries, one gets a broader perspective on context, becoming aware of the structure intended by the author. In some sense, analyzing structure at the level of observation helps to keep us on the road, knowing what text to study and why this is contextually important. So let me give you an example, and I do want to mention, I think the first thing I, I skipped over is we, we call this idea of Breaking up literary units, structural analysis. So we're going to try to structure scripture, and then we're, okay, we, we realize this is a unit that's to be studied together, and so we're going to break it down that way. So the two goals of this is, of course, to discern literary units so we can understand those breakdowns, but it's ultimately to grasp the message being communicated through the chosen literary form. So we're trying to understand what is the author trying to communicate uh, in this passage of scripture and again, that's the bridge to interpretation. We're breaking this down to, to understand it so we can understand what was the author seeking to communicate. So the first example I want to show you of this is in John chapter 2. So you can turn there in your Bibles. And here's an example where, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's not fitting for a chapter heading to start here. But sometimes if we get so caught up in, all right, I'm, you know, maybe in your devotions, you read one chapter a day. So I'm going to read chapter 2 of John, and then I'm going to read chapter 3 the next day, and you might miss the link between them and miss something the author is seeking to communicate uh, through, the, through the 
those verses working together, okay? So if you look at John chapter 2, in verse 23, this is how chapter 2 concludes. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, this is Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's the first two verses of chapter 3. Where do you see... There's a couple phrases or ideas at the end of chapter 2 that we see repeated in chapter 3 that we can, where we can see those tied together. Did you catch them when we read those? That's the biggest one, right? Uh, Jesus did not, and, and I think the Greek is, he did not, that, that word entrust is the same word as many believed in his name. So many believed in his name, but he didn't believe them. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He didn't, didn't need anyone to bear witness about man. He himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. Here we're going to see Jesus knows their heart. He knows that even though they profess faith in him or profess to believe in him, he knows the heart of the issue. Now here's an example of that. Here's Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes, and he says, Rabbi, you know, we know you're a teacher come from God. It seems like a very flattering thing. And what does Jesus get to? Unless you're born again. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So he knows his heart. And so you see this transition. Well, there's one other thing, one other phrase that we see that idea repeated in both of those passages. Did you catch it? Yes, absolutely. So at the end of chapter 3, again, you see this tie together. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And then what's Nicodemus' words? Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So you see the author seeking to communicate. Jesus knows their heart. He knows that they're looking at the signs and professing faith, but it's just seeing the signs. Now here's a great example of that in Nicodemus, who's a man who saw the signs that he does, recognize he has to be from God, but because Jesus knows his heart, he gets to the heart of the matter. Okay, so we see, again, just looking at these verses in a, as a unit, um, not breaking them up, can be helpful as we study and we seek to understand what the author is communicating. Okay? So we're going to look at uh, a lot of this, as they mentioned in the book, is very intuitive as we read. We're going to naturally probably notice, okay, this seems to be a unit that functions together. Um, for various reasons, but there's some ideas here that we're going to walk through that will help us to identify that, okay? So there's four different uh, means by which four different uh, aspects to determine these literary units, and then there's some ideas underneath them. So the first one are what we call boundary features. These are markers which help the reader determine where one unit in a larger text begins and ends, okay? So just like the title is, they're boundary features. Features. There are things you're going to find at the beginning of a passage, or at the end of the passage. Um, we're going to talk about three aspects of that that help us say this is clearly a unit of Scripture because of these boundary features. So the first one are what we call initial markers. 
So this, this is an indicator that a new literary unit has begun. So this is something you're going to find at the beginning of a passage that lets you know this is the start of a new idea or new new unit of Scripture, okay? And I didn't have room on the screen. I think I've got it in your notes. But I want to just show you several examples of these, okay? The first one is vocative address. These are examples that we see very commonly in epistles. Vocative address, like dear children, uh, brethren. So you see those titles and you know, okay, he's getting ready to start maybe a new idea or launch into something. It could be a rhetorical question, and I've got some different references there. We're not going to have time to walk through all of these, but it could start with a rhetorical question that starts a new unit of Scripture. Uh, conjunctions of inference, something like therefore. And it's interesting, you note those passages uh, as reference. It seems to suggest that the, the way they divided the chapters worked well because the, a lot of those are found at the very, in the very first verse. So like Romans 12.1, uh, what is it? Therefore... Um, I'm trying to think of that verse now. Yes, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. So in light of all the doctrinal stuff, so now it's kind of a new unit, new idea transitioning. So conjunctions of inference, adverbial indicators. So this would be, um, you know, it's Paul's concluding a thought, like in Ephesians 6.10, Philippians 3, where he says, finally. So he's going to say, finally, and then give, that's the start of his, Maybe last line of argumentation. In light of everything, here's a new unit of Scripture. Okay. Um, then you see topic statements like 1 Corinthians 7, 1, 8, 1, 12, 1. Now concerning. So as they would ask questions about certain things. Okay. We're going to deal with this idea. Okay. Now concerning this that you asked about. It's a new unit of Scripture. Um, so you see those ideas. Examples and narrative would be changes in time or setting or character or situation. And a couple examples they give is 2 Samuel 11, 1, where it says, in the spring when kings march out to war. So you see that's change in setting, a change in time, which is giving you a new unit of Scripture to be, to be looked at. Uh, or there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, transitioning to this idea, to this setting. So, uh, or Acts 12, 1, about that time King Herod cruelly attacked. So it's a change in time. So you can usually divide up that as a unit of Scripture to be studied uh, and to be observed. Examples in prophetic literature. Um, there are usually markers to indicate, in, like if it's a new oracle, uh, external to the oracle sometimes will be something like, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and then it would proceed or follow with what that word was. So that's a marker to know this is the start of a new unit. Uh, an opening statement where something like Michael 4, 4, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. So it's just the very start of the oracle. So you know that's a unit, that's a new statement and something to be broken down and understood. Okay. There's also final markers. So as you can guess, these are indicators that a literary unit has come to a conclusion. So these are going to be found at the end of a unit of scripture. Okay. Uh, just real quickly, examples in epistles would be something like doxologies or benedictions. Those are pretty clear, clear to pick out. Uh, examples in narrative might be a summary statement, a form, formulaic conclusion. There might be commentary uh, where the, there's, there's a narrative situation, but then the author's inserting his comments to wrap up that idea. Um, theological summation, 2 Kings uh, 17, 7 through 23. So I just want to give you a lot of examples 
again, we don't have time to walk through all these. And then examples in prophetic literature of these final markers would be a confirmation of divine authority. The Lord has spoken, so now you know, okay, that's the end of that unit of Scripture. Uh, or they share their intent, then they shall know that I am Yahweh. And this is specific to the book of Ezekiel. You see that phrase, uh, in basically that final marker demonstrating this is the end of a unit of Scripture. Okay? The third one is what we call inclusio. This is a literary means to wrap a unit with parallel bookends, often by employing parallel phraseology or subject matter. So this is where you're going to see something at the beginning of a unit and then maybe repeated later on to let you know, okay, these are the bookends, the same idea, ties it all together. The example they give is Ecclesiastes 1-2 and 12-8. So in 1-2 you see vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanity is all is vanity. And of course he fleshes that out in the next several chapters. This is vanity, this is vanity, this is vanity. And then in verse uh, in chapter 12, verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And that's right before the concluding remark of he's pursued everything, everything's vain. What's the conclusion? Fear the Lord and keep his commandments, right? So it's that bookend to show this is a similar uh, unit of Scripture. And so while you would probably have to break up Ecclesiastes in your study, you want to see that overarching idea of what those several chapters are about. Okay, so that's an inclusio. I want to stop. Are there any questions? Because I know this is a lot just to walk through. So if you have questions or need clarification, just let me know. Otherwise, we'll keep rolling, okay? Yes, Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just, you know, I think, I don't know if, if, um, like the Geneva Bible would have been the first. I should have looked into that. I don't remember historically when the first Bible with chapters and verses was, but it was just, I think, just like they translated, probably a group of men that sat down and just tried to determine, here's where we're going to put chapters and verses. And sometimes it's very accurate. Sometimes it's not. Just like in our Bibles, not only do we, I mean, most versions, um, like the ESV I have, not only are there chapter and verse divisions, usually have like a heading uh, over, like if you're in John 1, the word became flesh, and then verse 19, the testimony of John the Baptist, and then go down, behold the Lamb of God. So even those who put together these versions, they're just trying to demonstrate units of Scripture. Um, and those aren't bad. Those can be helpful, but we don't want to, though that's the authority. That has to be, we're only going to look at this passage. So that's a good question, though. But yeah, it's just them seeking to divide it up as best they could figure it out. So... Anything else before we move on? Good question. All right, the next uh, means by which we can understand these units of Scripture are what we call structural formulas, okay? This is the way a text is intentionally constructed to portray the author's intended message. Um, And we're going to look at a couple examples of these as well. This is most common in poetry, um, but you can find it throughout other genres of Scripture as well. And so we see, and some of these are idea, literary features we've talked about before to be aware of, but now we're looking at them in light of determining a unit of Scripture. So we've talked about repetition before, but repetition can also be a means by determining, okay, here's a unit of Scripture that we want to break down and study. So uh, repetition is a recurring word or phrase within a unit. Uh, an example of this would be Genesis. Uh, in the first several, well, throughout the book, you see this repetition of the phrase, 
these are the generations, history, or record of. And so every time you see that, you know, okay, this is probably the start of a new unit to be studied, okay? It's in these transition uh, type things, this repetition. Uh, in the New Testament, you see the example of throughout John's gospel, it references Jesus' hour. Um, and so when you see that, you, you can see that, okay, this is a, a common idea, a repeated thing to see what is the author trying to communicate by using this phrase, repeating it over and over again, okay? The next one we've touched on as well, parallelism. This is corresponding phrases or thoughts. Um, if you want to, turn to Jonah, and we can look at an example of this. There's a few of these I want to look at. Like I said, there's, there's just too many to uh, work through all of them. So you see the, these parallel ideas in Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, what you're going to see is his reaction to God... Um, not destroying Nineveh, so his reaction to Nineveh's repentance versus, in verses 5 through 9, his reaction to the plant withering. And so we're going to see parallel reactions in different ways. And God's using that to communicate to us something and to communicate, even in this passage, to Jonah about truth. So look at Jonah 4, 1 through 4, and then notice, and we'll, read, we'll keep reading all the way through 9. So notice his response to Nineveh's repentance versus his response to uh, the plant withering and dying. So it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat uh, to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would happen or what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attached the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So did you catch the parallel ideas? In one, Jonah's, he's exceedingly angry uh, over Nineveh's repentance. With the plant, he's exceedingly glad, but then we could say he's really exceedingly angry when the plant withers and dies. He wants to die. In both of them, God asks him, do you do well to be angry in both? And then the book concludes by God challenging Jonah. You care for this plant that you did nothing to produce. You were upset about that. And then God says, should I not be concerned with these people who are spiritually dead, basically don't know their left hand from their right hand, spiritually speaking. And it just ends with a question, really weird ending, verse 11. It actually ends with the word cattle. So it's just a, a hanging on there like a, should you really be concerned about these things, questioning Jonah's priorities, and, and thus, of course, helping us to apply that to our lives. So you see this parallel idea in this passage, and you can see what God's seeking to communicate through that.
The next one is what we call uh, chiasm or chiasm. It's from the Greek word, letter chi, which looks like an X, an English X. Uh, and so, as you imagine, it's a crisscrossing, a thematic crisscrossing between adjacent lines of poetry. And I should have put this up there on the screen. I think I, think I have it in the notes, right? Because it's a good visual. Do I have that Isaiah 6.10 broken down? Okay. Because I like the visual uh, in the book laid it out this way to see how this crisscrosses. So what you see in Isaiah 6.10 are really seven lines, the first six, six of which correspond with one another. So the first line corresponds with the sixth line, the second with the fifth, the third and fourth. And so you see this idea coming to a crisscross. So Isaiah 6.10, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and in the seventh line, and turn, turn and be healed. So you see this crisscrossing, and God's bringing these, this idea together to communicate a powerful idea. Um, they've made their heart dull, they've made their ears heavy, eyes are blind. They should open their eyes, hear with their ears, understand, and then they would turn and be healed. So you see this poetic way of bringing into focus the idea. The book says the main body of thought then meets in the middle between lines three and four, Thus, the crisscross effect with a seventh line, in this case, functioning as a capstone to the verse. Uh, another example, and I think I have this in the notes too, is a possible outline of the book of Ruth can show the, this crisscrossing. You see there, uh, the introduction is the devastation of Naomi's family. Then Naomi's two relatives, uh, uh, I think that is a typo figure out whether to support her. Ruth goes out to Boaz's field. Boaz has support and generosity. Then Ruth goes out to the threshing floor. Boaz has support and generosity. Naomi's two relatives deliberate whether to support her. And then conclusion, restoration of Naomi's family. Okay, so you see how it comes full circle and there's this crisscrossing idea here. Okay. The fourth and final one under structural uh, features or formulas is acrostic. So this is a poetic device where each line begins with a successive letter of the alphabet. So this isn't as easy to pick up in translations because in Hebrew or Greek, they're going to have different letters than in English. Um, but a common example and one that translators have sought to communicate is Psalm 119. If you look at Psalm 119, what you see is the 22 Hebrew letters and you have, I think, eight verses for each. Uh, and then it moves on to the next. And so the first line of each, each of those eight verses, we could say, are start with that Hebrew letter. So it'd be like A, and each line starts with A, and then B, each line starts with B. And so it works through there, so we see that acrostic. The book says the entire psalm's framed around the succession of acrostic subunits, each of which contains eight lines, where the first letter of the first word of each line begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, once eight lines are completed, the psalm proceeds to the next successive letter of the alphabet. So that can be a way of just seeing a unit of Scripture uh, by, by recognizing that acrostic. Okay? Any questions before we move on to the third one? I know we're flying through this. All right, the next means by which we can seek to understand these literary units is cohesion. This is the basic qualities which unify a literary unit. And this is one of the most important because as we're looking to units of Scripture, what we're looking to is 
Is there a similarity in thought or setting or time? There's got to be that cohesion for a unit to exist, okay? Uh, Someone said cohesion is the quality of a text that gives it unity. So you can't really have a unit of Scripture without some sense of unity, right? So that's the idea here with cohesion. So a few ideas to understand this cohesion, genre and subgenre. This is classifications for types of literature which are based on similarities between form, style, and subject matter. So we know this idea of genre, poetry, or narrative, or epistle, different types of genres. And then even within a genre of scripture, you might find a subgenre. So you might find a narrative, and in that narrative there's a poem, or uh, there's a prophetic oracle, or whatever it may be. And so we want to understand when, those, when that subgenre changes, that might be a new unit, or we want to understand uh, what the author is seeking to communicate. So a change in genre or subgenre often, but not always, indicates a shift from one unit to another. So a couple examples. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, there's a, a number of prophetic subgenres, such as judgment speech, speeches, salvation oracles, laments, visions, prophetic drama, biographical narrative, allegory, and even letters. So even within a genre of Scripture, you're going to find different subgenres uh, that give you clues to this is a new unit to be studied. Uh, example in the Gospels, very clearly, Matthew 1, what you see is the verse, first 17 verses are genealogy. And then in verse 18, it transitions to narrative. The same in John 1. There's a prologue in verses 1 through 18, and then it advances to narrative in verse 19. So um, when you see this, you know, okay, this is a unit of Scripture to be studied, and now this transition to a new unit. The next one is content. Uh, similarity in subject matter that unites a unit. So this is one of the most important ones to be aware of. When there's a similarity in content, and there's that cohesion, that's when we know there's a unit of Scripture. It's communicating a singular idea. Um, the book says, cohesion in context is at the core of what it means to have a contextually contained unit and thus has significant impact on interpretation. In the New Testament epistles, cohesion and content is often characterized by a progressive line of argument addressing a particular issue, while in the prophets it may revolve around the subject of an oracle. The content of narrative tends to cohere around characters and plot. Each book of the Bible will have its own matters of content typical of its genre and the purpose of the book itself, but within a book there are often numerous shifts in subject matter. So that's what we're looking for. It's a content, so a similar idea. The example they give is uh, the twists and turns of the narrative nestled between recurring banquet scenes in the book of Esther. So if you study book, the book of Esther, you'll see numerous banquet scenes, and it seems to be a shift uh, in the content and what, what's happening in the narrative. Okay. Similarly to that is setting. This is common elements related to time and space. So this is, of course, easiest to observe when we're studying a narrative, when the book may say, okay, and then they were here, or then, you know, this happened, so it's a change in where they are physically, or maybe a change in time, where the narrative says, you know, this many years later, or this time. Those are easy markers to pick up and know that the setting has changed. Um, Sometimes the setting's communicated in oracles or in the Psalms. So 
uh, in prophetic books and in like the Psalms, it's harder to know the setting, right? Unless we have historical background or unless Scripture touches on it. Uh, and so we have to do a little digging to figure out what could the setting of that Psalm or that prophecy be. Sometimes the prophetic books aren't necessarily in uh, consequential order. Um, they may be kind of hodgepodge in a sense, so we have to try to discern the setting if we can. The next one is common language. This is similarities in grammar and vocabulary that, deny, that unite a unit. Okay? So we see similar grammar or similar vocabulary that can tip us off to, okay, this is a unit to be studied. So example is in the Song of Solomon, what you find is a shift at times uh, in the pronoun of the speaker. It might be him, and then it might be switched to her. And so you know, okay, here's a section because they had the similar pronoun usage. Here's everything that he said. Here's everything that she said, that kind of thing. Or another example with vocabulary would be in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, when it talks about God, we see the name Elohim, right? But then in a uh, comparative, when it goes back into the couple verses into chapter 2, you see it shift from Elohim to Yahweh, the covenant name for God, right? And so that's seeking to communicate, okay, we're, there's a change in a sense of now we're starting to see a progression toward Abraham and those, those ideas in the book of Genesis, okay? Any questions about that? Any of those? All right. Relationship is the last one, okay? This is the connection or connections within and between literary units. The book says potential dynamics between phrases and clauses within a unit of discourse include cause and effect, sequential listing, contrast and comparison, reason, purpose, and design, result or consequence, means, manner, inference, summation, elaboration, conclusion, analogy and illustration, command and concession. So uh, what's the relationship within a unit of Scripture? But I think we can even understand in a book of the Bible there might be one overarching idea and there might be several units. And so we want to understand even the relationship between the units. So within the units and even between the units, what is, what is that relationship? Okay. There's five of these we're going to touch on real quickly. Uh, interchange. This is intentional contrast and comparison between narrative figures and events. And we've talked about this contrast and comparison before. But in a book of the Bible, you might see this, uh, and it's something to pick up on. So it might be a con contrast and comparison between uh, Saul and David in 1 Samuel, or Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, or we've touched on Rahab and Achan, the contrast there that's very seems to be very clearly communicated. So that interchange is one way to, to note that relationship. Inference. This is a logical relationship between conjoined literary units. And so we've seen this idea before with the word therefore. We've talked about this throughout. Therefore is a significant word that connects literary units through inference. Okay? So in Hebrews, and in other places where you see that, therefore, but Hebrews 12.1 is a great example. And I'm just going to read what the book says because I like the way they tie it in. But what was the, what's the question we've said you ask when you see that word, therefore? What's it there for, right? 
It's transition, and it's looking back to, in chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews, it's looking back to chapter 11, which is what? You know what chapter 11 of Hebrews is? Hall Hall of Faith, right? So, in light of these things that have been building, now there's a, a transition in thought. So, but they're tied together. So that's the relationship. Um, so the book says, consider the example of Hebrews 12.1 in guiding the direction of discourse between major units of thought using a conjunction of inference. Therefore, based upon the writer's survey of the Faith Hall of Fame, he now moves on to exhort his audience to follow the Old Testament examples of faithfulness. Hebrews 11.39 brings the prior unit to conclusion, while Hebrews 12.1 begins a new unit. Yet, this unit of exhortation is integrally related to the discourse survey in chapter 11. The point of inference, the therefore, that introduces the new unit, does more to connect the two relationally than to divide them conceptually. So, even though we would study uh, Hebrews 12.1 and a few verses in as a unit... It's important to understand the relationship with the previous unit, right? And, and the overarching idea that the book of Hebrews is seeking to communicate, okay? The next one is prominence. This is an emphasis on certain elements of the text. So in order to communicate ideas, writers will ne- necessarily place emphasis on certain elements of the text, thereby minimizing others. And so... Um, a good example, Philippians 3, 2 through 10, we're not going to read it, but if you read it, it's one of those things where you see a building argument and you see the prominence of what Paul's saying. Um, and I think that's the passage where he says, you know, if anybody thinks they're righteous, you know, no one's more righteous than me. I, you know, and he lays out this case, but then he says it's, it's nothing compared to knowing Christ, okay? Another example of narrative would be John 11. Um, there's a a kind of a climax of John 11 where, G, where Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb and Lazarus comes out of the tomb so it hits a peak there's a prominence there and then it, the, it basically right after that it transitions to the next chapter of scripture okay there's another one parenthetical commentary and I wish we had time to really um, look at this let's maybe look flip over to John 11 we'll see if we can pick out a couple because I want you to I thought this was a good exercise to do. John 11. And so there are times within a text where there's comments made by the narrator within a narrative text. And I want to see if we can pick any out here in John 11 real quickly. So let's see. Where, where does it go from narrative to maybe this is the comments of John who's writing? to give some understanding to it, okay? So let's see if we can read down and find any of these. Um, now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, 
He stumbles because the light is not in him. So let's stop there. Did you catch any verses or phrases that seem to be the more the inserted comments into the narrative to give understanding? I, I noticed at least two. Did you catch any of those? Okay. You said verse 8 and 9. Okay. Okay. Definitely. Ryan, you said verse 2. That was one that I definitely noticed. He's laying out the narrative. Lazarus is ill. Uh, he's in Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha, which in some ways that's almost narrative. But then I like verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet. So he's giving a comment of, this is the same one that, so it's a, a commentary to help us to understand who he's talking about. Um, the other one that clearly stood out, too, um, was verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he's inserting this so we understand. This is why it was kind of bizarre that he didn't go right away. He loved them. So he's giving a comment, and we could read through all of it and probably notice others. But this parenthetical commentary helps us to understand the relationship, what's going on in this unit, okay? The last one, real quickly, is what we call hinge statements. These are major breaks and pivots in the storyline or the line of argument in a discourse. And I just want to read what the book says about uh, Hebrews 8.1 is a great example of this hinge statement. So consider Hebrews 8.1, a rather obvious hinge providing orientation within the, within the complex line of argument of that book. So it starts by saying, now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the, of the majesty in the heavens. So this is quoting Hebrews 8.1. Just in case the reader needs clarification on what has been covered thus far, the writer of Hebrews provides a summary, the prior chapters 5-7, through seven, dealing with the high priestly role of Christ. So 8.1 is kind of a summation of what's been talked about in verses 5-7. through seven. But in Hebrews 8.2, the next tier in the author's line of argument is introduced and the hinge is formed. A minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. What follows in Hebrews 8.3-10, or sorry, 8.3-10.18 is essentially an elaboration upon Hebrews 8.2, the back end of the hinge. So he's basically saying, okay, in light of what we've talked about, a quick summary, now there's a transition and now we're talking about about what to do in light of that. And so recognizing these hinge statements can help us to understand, okay, this unit's being wrapped up, it's being tied together, though. Again, this is under the overarching heading of relationship. We can see that relationship. In light of this, now here's the next unit, but they're tied together, they're connected, okay? Um, did I, in that, under conclusion, is there a quote there in the notes? Okay, I'll let you read that. Basically, just a summation, because I thought it was helpful. Uh, and this was a challenge to me because it's so easy to get in a niche when you're pre preparing sermons or Bible studies. Um, it's so easy to just, okay, what are my three points? And now let's make everything fit under those three points. But Scripture's not always that clear cut where it's just point one, point two, point three. And so they challenge us. We need to make sure we're looking for these units and not just, okay, I've got to find my two points or three points and two subpoints, whatever it may be. Um, we've got to think outside the box in that. So I thought that was a challenge and wanted to conclude uh, in that way. So.